I've always been a proud sponsor of My Patriot Supply because I know that having survival food is a way to prepare for you and your family in these days ahead. And this month, you can save $200 on their best-selling three-month emergency food supply kit. Over 2,000 calories a day, 21 varieties, up to a 25-year shelf life, tasty breakfasts, lunches, dinners, drinks, and snacks, resealable heavy-duty four-layer pouches with oxygen absorbers, made in the USA, no MSG added, sealed into six rugged water-resistant buckets, ships fast, with free shipping included. Before you go buy those Christmas gifts that will give some people a temporary thrill, why not be prepared for you and your family when there's no food or very little in the stores? And we can already see that happening now. Go to preparewiththinkaboutit.com and save $200 on the best-selling three-month emergency food supply kit that you can get your hands on. That's preparewiththinkaboutit.com. From the American Hebrew of September 8, 1920. The Bolsheviks revolution in Russia was the work of Jewish brains, of Jewish dissatisfaction, of Jewish planning, whose goal is to create a new order in the world. What was performed in so excellent a way in Russia, thanks to Jewish brains, and because of Jewish dissatisfaction, and by Jewish planning, shall also through the same Jewish mental and physical forces, become a reality all over the world. A righteous Jew, Henry H. Klein, explained that Zionism is a political program for the conquest of the world. Zionism destroyed Russia by violence as a warning to other nations. It is destroying the United States through bankruptcy, as Lenin advised. Zionism wants another world war if necessary to enslave the people. Our manpower is scattered over the world. Will we be destroyed from within, or will we wake up in time to prevent it? The Rabbi Stephen Samuel Wise in New York said, Some called it communism, but I call it Judaism. People were being shot um, day and night throughout the biggest country in the world. Stalin even got to the point of killing people by random, by quarters. Let's say 100,000 in uh, Tambov district. Okay, that's it. Whoever they grabbed and shot will be fulfilling quota. They wouldn't care about names. Then after the quotas were fulfilled, the local authorities would report to Stalin, to Central Committee, and ask uh, for additional quotas. Khrushchev prosil, because limit, what, там, что-то ему там разрешалось. Что-то 7 или 8 тысяч врагов народа. Он просил, дайте мне лимит на 17 тысяч. An additional quota will be given. And after fulfilling, they would again ask for additional quota. And so it will go in circles. It was like a like, like mincemeat machine, you know. It was just killing and killing and killing. Sometimes the Jewish butchers cut open the stomachs of their victims, pulled out a length of small intestine, nailed it to a telegraph pole, and with the whip forced the victim to run circles around the pole until the whole intestine became unraveled and the victim died the most agonizing death possible. Pregnant Christian women were shamed to trees and their babies cut out of their bodies. Some victims in Kiev were placed in a coffin with a decomposing body and buried alive, only to be dug up after half an hour. Lenin was still not satisfied with this and reported, More power to the terror! The Bolsheviks would eliminate every free thinker. Trotsky wanted every individual to be a rootless soldier of labor, and he thought that all those demanding free speech, free press, and free trade unions should be shot like dogs. If ordered to move, they were forced to obey. If they refused, they were deserters who would be punished with death. 
Every move was at gunpoint. Trotsky often executed his victims personally in the most cruelest ways. He happily ordered disciplinary executions and he even ordered children murdered. Officers and their families were executed for disobeying orders. The Jew Grigory Sinonyev, real name Hirsch Apfelbaum, as head of the Communist International, wrote in an article in the Draznaya Gazeta in Moscow, September 1st, 1918. We will make our hearts cruel, hard and immovable, so that no mercy will enter them, so that they will not quiver at the sight of a sea of enemy blood. We will let loose the floodgates of that sea. Without mercy, without sparing, we will kill our enemies in scores of hundreds. Let them be thousands. Let them drown themselves in their own blood. Let there be floods of blood of the bourgeoisie. More blood as much as possible. Every people who dared to criticize the regime would be branded as anti-Semitic and punished with death. Christians, priests, and the most attractive youth and all non-Jewish intellectuals were the first to be exterminated. In years to come, Stalin's crime against humanity would make Lenin's red terror crumble in comparison. The Gulag was the Jewish NKVD system of forced labor and extermination camps. Any person suspected of disagreeing with the Jewish Bolshevik government was kidnapped by the Jewish secret police and deported to a gulag. Прямо вот так вот, 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 по обе стороны, вот так вот, вот, она вся в лагерях, особенно вот сюда, вот здесь вот, 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 здесь кругом лагеря, кругом, кругом. Вы ели по, по каждый лагерь, там, по, по дороге? Да нет, да? нет, ну, ну, в каждый, ну, господи, мне надо было тогда жить тысячи лет, чтобы каждый лагерь, даже по два дня, тысячи лет мне надо жить, понимаете, чтобы в каждый заглянуть. Даже ты представляешь себе, вот на этой дороге, вот, вот на Транссибирской дороге, лагеря были нанизаны, как вот на нитку бусы. Вот, на нитку. Бусы, вот, тут, понял, да? Ну вот, вот бусы. Понимаешь слово бусы? Вот. Они прямо здесь так и были нанизаны. В пятерках, да, в пятерках, и тогда нас по фамилиям вызывали по пятеркам, так как привезли, как привели, так мы по порядку и были, и тогда нас садили в вагоны. Вагоны такие похожие, но они были хуже, они были деревянные вагоны, такие, что тут с собаками, с, с винтовками, очень много солдат было. Там нам давали по ведро угля, и потом, потом мерзли дальше уже. До вечной мерзлоты нужно было вырыть грунт. Значит, фундамент 80 на 80, яма такая. А грунт попадет иногда на 14 метров. И только видно одна звезда. И сколько на эту звезду я смотрела и знала, что говорила, что и мама на эту звездочку смотрит. Мне надо видеть ее обязательно. Это меня удерживало. А как рукава держит из школы? Так, так, ну, как? Очень холодно, очень. Но когда работаешь, то уже не холодно, кровь тебя сохраняет, а потом надежда еще на то, чтобы выжить. Это еще двойная сила. Что это все впереди, что надо, надо, надо честным трудом, как сказано, искупать свое вино перед Родиной. А потом я же строю для, для себя на своей Родине.
тупи не осталось. Отлагер. Все боюсь, что полева не было. Вдруг не будет хлеб. Вот такой у меня осталось. Я все время есть хотелось. Вообще хотелось Женщина сама лежит, опухшая, по-моему. Так, говорит, давай ее сейчас заберем. Что у нас все равно помрет завтра, за ней еще ехать нужно будет сегодня. Она просит, что да я же еще живу, я жить хочу, я в доме. The most infamous of these camps was the desolate island in the Siberian River, Nazino, as known as Cannibal Island. On this island, the inhabitants underwent torture by starvation to the point that they ate each other and survived out of sheer desperation. Almost immediately, the newcomers to the islands were attacked and eaten. Corpses were butchered and human flesh were being cooked and eaten. Several bodies were found with their liver, breasts, calves, heart and lungs removed. Вот здесь и людоедство, здесь и все открылось, потому что каждый хотел спастись любыми путями. Не все люди вот были такие, что могли спокойно, поэтому и описывается, что и убивали, и вырезали икры, и вырезали груди, и очень много можно было и других историй вспомнить. Даже, даже вот, вот, допустим, человек только уже вот-вот должен умереть, Люди уже стояли и ждали, когда он умрет, чтобы какой-то кусок мяса взять. Сырым мясом ели, сырое мясо ели. Уже не, не думали, что он больной чем-то или не больной, лишь бы только поесть и хоть может еще день прожить. Мясо резали и привязывали. 
Началась охота за людьми, молодых особенно, за девушками, за молодыми. Их просто или убивали, или просто отрезали, ну, какие-то, что называется, части тела мягкие. На костре жарились, едали тут же. В общем, страшные вещи начались. хорошая девчонка, а он все караулил ее. Приедет да, охраняет эту девчонку. А потом вздумал, уехал помыться. Он товарищу наказал, вы за ней приглядываете, а тот что, столь народу вокруг, а ее привязали руки назад к тополине и груди отрезали ей. Икры отрезали, мускулы. Все-все, где можно есть. Голодные люди, есть надо. А парень-то когда приехал, она еще жива была. Хотел спасти, умерла она, истекла, тут же умерла. И вот, парню-то не повезло. изменения. Если на первых стадиях человек, видно, как-то приспосабливается к этому, то постепенно вот этот дефицит веществ начинает сказываться на психике человека. И здесь на первый план могут всплыть именно из бессознательного наши природные животные инстинкты, такие как каннибализм. Это достаточно нередкое явление в периоды таких больших массовых голоданий, когда голодает большое количество людей. На другий день моя сестра где-то там ходила по тих лугах, что она там делала, я не скажу, уже ей нема живых. Она, <coughs> она находит черепа детского, уже отвареный, уже без волос, без ничего, такой череп. Она взяла такую на палочку и да и крутить, а у нас там по соседству жил мужчина, оно не его звали. Каже, що це ти крутиш там? Вона каже, якийсь череп. Ми подивилися, вони подивилися, то він бере маму мою і йдуть до неї. Вони приходять до неї, то в неї вже сокіра в крові і на стінах кров. Но це вже був найстоящий голод. Вони питають її, а де ж ваші діти? Нема. Помирали, то я їх на Трощанському руху похоронила. Канавит Трошенский. Они пошли шукать, то там нема свежей земли, нема тей канави. Приходят снова до нее домой. Это мама моя сим, то я дуже помню. Ой, они пришли, то она уже наварила этого мяса дитячого, печки, колись печи, печи были не. И в дижечке посоленное мясо. Это дитяче. Уже посолене, зложене дижечки. Они заставили ее на мешок, это мясо, и вели ее в Иванополь, там была милиция, там был НКВД. И она в лесу пропала. Сердце лопло, и она не дошла туда. The founders of the Gulag death camp system were the two Jews, Naftali Frankel and Levi Birmingham. The infamous Soviet gulags were under the direct control of the mass-murdering Jew, Gendrish Yagoda. He was not the only one involved in the running of these camps. The Jew Lev Inchir was the commissar for Soviet death camp transit administration. Ferin, Rapaport, Kogan and Zhuk were commissars of the death camps and slave labor. They also supervised the mass deaths of laborers during the construction of the White Sea Baltic Canal. Jews were the commandants of 11 out of 12 main gulags, or concentration camps, including the camp system directors Matvey Barman and Herschel Yehuda. A particularly cruel sadist was the Jew Leonid Reichmann, head of the NKVD's special department and the organization's chief interrogator. Ironically, communism, aka the workers' paradise, was pretty much the opposite. 
The policy hurt every worker and benefited only the communists in high power. Everyone who opposed Stalin's collectivization paid with their lives. Communism was not created by the masses to overthrow the bankers. Communism was created by the bankers to overthrow and enslave the masses. Голод, холод, нужду. В чем же мы виноваты, что так все случилось? И кто за это в ответе? За все наши муки и страдания. Папу, маму, скажи папе, что я еще восьмой год добиваюсь, чтобы его была честь оправдана. Я его наказ выполняю. Он говорил мне, доченька, ты у меня самая, будешь умная. Так постарайся, придет время, добейся правды нашей. Что ни за что вы страдаете, ни за что я пострадал. Their idea was to destroy old order in Europe. There were many different motives for why the First World War was fought. Since 1871, Germany had emerged as a powerhouse, upsetting the long-established balance of power scheme in Europe. The established great powers, Britain, France and Russia, joined together in 1914 to destroy this new rival. On the 28th of June 1914, Gavrilo Princip, a Bosnian Serb and a failed student, assassinated the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, successor to the Austria-Hungarian throne. Austria-Hungary had signed a defensive pact with Germany, which Germany in 1909 reconfirmed by declaring that Germany was bound to stand by Austria-Hungary even if it had started a war. Austria declared war on Serbia, which started the First World War. Throughout the whole war, Germany wanted peace and had nothing to gain in the conflict whatsoever. Even if Germany was well on its way to win the war in December of 1916, Kaiser Wilhelm offered to negotiate peace with the Entente powers. By December 1916, Germany had a clear advantage. France had suffered horrible losses. Russia faced internal Bolshevik uprising and revolutionary chaos and had to withdraw its troops. Britain was under the U-boat blockade and not one inch of Germany had been occupied. Germany still offered generous peace terms. Kaiser Wilhelm was ready to just call off the war and return to how things were before. That was when the Zionist Jews, Chaim Wiseman and Nathan Sokolov approached the British with a dirty deal. They offered to use their global influence to bring the US into the war on Britain's side while undermining and destroying Germany from within. In exchange for US entry, the British would steal Palestine from Ottoman Turkey, which was Germany's ally, and then allow the Jews to settle there. The deal was called the Balfour Declaration and was delivered to the Baron Walter Rothschild. Jews in London then sent messages to Louis Brandeis, one of the Jewish members of the Supreme Court, instructing him to pressure President Wilson to join the war. Other Zionist power brokers such as Bernard Baruch, Paul Warburg and Jacob Schiff also pressured America to join. The British government agreed that they would support a Jewish homeland in Palestine in exchange for the powerful Jewish lobby in America getting the USA to join the Allies. British airplanes dropped leaflets over Germany printed in Yiddish. The Balfour leaflets to win Jewish support in Germany by promising the Jews a homeland in Palestine after they have won the war. And here it is, the Balfour Declaration. What do you feel when you, when you see it here? I genuinely feel it's one of the most extraordinary moments in the history of the Jewish people. Uh, if you think it took 3,000 years uh, to get to this. And then you say, 
How did this miracle happen? And it's the most incredible piece of opportunism. I mean, if you think you had an impoverished uh, would-be scientist, Heim Weizmann, who somehow gets to England, meets a few people, including members of my family, seduces them, he has such great charm and conviction. He gets to Balfour, and he unbelievably persuades Balfour and Lloyd George, the Prime Minister, and most of the ministers, that this idea of um, the national home for um, Jews should be allowed to take place. After the deal was made, Jewish-owned media immediately unleashed a ton of anti-German propaganda, depicting the Germans as barbaric Huns. This was done to get the public support for American intervention in the war, while the Zionists and Jewish Marxists of Germany started to destabilize Germany from within through several strikes within the arms industry factories, which weakened the German war effort. If America wouldn't have been tricked into the war, it would have been stopped right there and then, and millions of European lives would have been saved. American entrance into the war was then carried out as promised. Lord Balfour was assuring the Zionists that Britain would fulfill its end of the deal after the war had ended, the theft and overthrowing of Palestine from the Ottoman Turks. Before more European blood would be shed on European soil, both Germany and Austria-Hungary again asked for a peaceful resolution. Wilson was forced to admit that Germany and Austria-Hungary had indeed expressed general peace proposals, but he casually dismissed them all. Lying about how beautiful the post-war peace was going to be like, Wilson managed to trick so many war-weary Germans into an unconditional surrender and disarmament in November of that same year, 1918. Communists and Zionists within Germany stabbed their countrymen in the back. Marxist trade union leaders ordered factory strikes which deprived German troops of their vital supplies. German morale and industrial output quickly fell. Germany laid down the weapons and wished for an honorary peace. After the war, the treasonous betrayal of 1918 became known as the stab in the back. Germany had simply been betrayed from within by Zionists and Communists and consequently they were all tied together as enemies because they wished to see Germany fail. In Israel today, Balfour Day, November the 2nd, is widely celebrated. The Palestinian Arabs observe it as a day of grief. In January 1919, the victors met at the Paris Peace Conference to financially crush Germany and determine the new borders of the defeated nation. Germany was not even invited and would not have any say in the final decisions as the globalists ripped Germany to pieces. The conference also created the basis for a future world government, the League of Nations. The Zionist delegation that was present that had brought America into the war also made sure that former Arab territories of the Ottoman Empire were separated from Turkish rule and broken up to into small states so that Palestine could become a British protectorate. The Jews then claimed to a peace of Palestine guaranteed by the League of Nations exactly as Herzl had predicted in 1887. Out of the Paris Peace Conference came the brutal and notorious Treaty of Versailles on 20th of June 1919 and the Treaty of Saint-Germain on 20th of September the same year. Even liberal historians recognize the evil of the treaty today. A Germany that did not want any war, that had tried to avoid war, and had offered to make peace on numerous occasions throughout the whole war was now totally disarmed. Germany was forced to pay massive war reparations in the form of money and natural resources. The crushing debt payments 100 billion marks equal to 1 trillion dollars in modern currency devastated the German economy and soon caused a hyperinflationary monetary collapse. The total sum of war reparations demanded from Germany were about 226 billion marks. The aim was to financially break Germany. John Maynard Keynes predicted that these harsh reparations would lead to the financial collapse of Germany. 
Germany's armed forces were restricted to 100,000 men, intended solely for police duties within the country, and conscription was prohibited. All German colonies were taken away from her. The same thing happened with a number of German areas in Europe. In total, Germany had to give up 13% of her lands. Several million Germans ended up stranded outside of the German Empire, and millions were forcefully expelled from their homes. Germany also lost large parts of their industry when key iron ore and coal assets disappeared. The industrial German Rhineland would be occupied by French troops for 15 years. The Treaty of Versailles was a devastating peace treaty for Germany, but the agreement also had serious economic consequences not only for Germany but also for Europe and the world, as Germany was such an important brick in the world economy. The treaty contained 440 clauses. 414 out of them were specifically dedicated to punishing Germany for a war that the nation was totally innocent of. In the Times, 1919, Winston Churchill expressed the ultimate goal of the treaty: Should Germany do business again in the next 50 years, we have led this war in vain. The encirclement and unprecedented hunger blockade killed almost a million of German children, women, old men, and the most fragile of society. The Allies now had only one fixed intention: to prolong the power of Versailles and to destroy Germany for good. Germany was now completely disarmed, and she had been damaged on all sides and had no way of defending herself. At any moment, could her neighbors decide to attack her? Because of the enormous reparation costs to be paid in gold, there was no longer any backing for the mark. This led to inflation, which totally wiped out all the German savings. Germany, 1922 to 23, faced the most horrific hyperinflation the world has ever seen, and the German mark became worthless. Unemployment, hunger, and a hopeless future distinguished the Weimar Republic to the German people. Suicide rates were high. Unemployment topped 30% as desperate Germans committed suicide. Birth rates were extremely low. Anarchy and chaos was in the air. There was nothing the disarmed, humiliated, and hungry German people could do about it. As communists even seized parts of many cities. In 1929, the Federal Reserve caused the Great Depression. The researcher Boris Borisov, in his article titled "The American Famine," estimated the victims of the financial crisis in the U.S. at over seven million people. The globalist powers had now managed to orchestrate yet another famine that killed millions of white Europeans, like in Russia before. Ben Bernanke said regarding the Great Depression, "We did it." By we, Bernanke, of course, meant the Jewish leaders of the Federal Reserve System. Back in Germany, the effects of the engineered stock market crash was even worse than in any other country, as the life savings of the people were wiped out as prices doubled every two days for 20 straight months. 1922, inflation was spiraling wildly out of control. People would be paid in the morning and have suitcase fulls of banknotes. And they would have to then run to the shops because, in the time between being paid and the time when they bought their goods, their food, the prices would have risen. Berlin was in a state of total, total chaos. Hundreds of thousands of dispossessed, starving in the streets, and at the same time, you had very rich people. So you got on the one hand the poor eating turnip soup, the butchers selling crows, squirrels, even rats, and on the other side, people who could afford it eating the most sumptuous meals, like they never paused for thought. The Germans had to pay two to twenty billion marks for a single postage stamp. A loaf of bread cost two billion marks. A pound of butter cost two trillion marks. The German middle class was the worst hit and saw all their savings and businesses being destroyed. Starving families and their children begged on the streets. Many Germans referred to their devalued money as Judefetzen, Jewish confetti, because whilst the Germans were starving, the Jewry lived their golden luxury life in the Republic. 
Germany was totally bankrupt in the end of 1929. The Jewish statistician Alfred Marcus estimated the average Jewish income for 1930 as three times the average income for the rest of the population. The industries, as in the Ruhr, were all bankrupt and workers were all laid off in their millions. In January 1933, over six million Germans were unemployed. Although the Jews comprised less than 1% of the German population, the political influence of the Jews in the Weimar Republic was enormously out of proportion to their numbers in the population. They managed to control over 50% of the media and the press, and 70% of all the judges, 57% of the metal trade, 22% of grain, and 39% of the textile trade. German banking and finance was under the total control of Jews. They were particularly evident in the private banking in Berlin, which in 1923 had 150 private Jewish banks, as opposed to only 11 private non-Jewish banks. Four of the six members of the controlling board of the Reichstag directors were Jews, including Jacob Goldschmidt and Rudolf Havenstein. In order for anyone to control people's minds, one has to control the press and media. Jewish domination of the press and the public mind began with Reuters News Agency in 1865. Established by the Jew Paul Reuter, born Israel Bere Yosafat in 1865, the Reuters Telegram Company was the first major news organization in the world. Almost every major news outlet in the world today subscribes to Reuters services, which operates in over 200 cities in 94 countries in about 20 languages. The Washington Post was controlled by Zionist Federal Reserve Chairman Eugene Mayer, in 1940, Major would fire the Washington Post pacifist editor for refusing to endorse U.S. involvement in World War II. Post would later be handed down to Mayer's daughter, the late Catherine Mayer Graham. In 1896, Adolf Ochs bought the New York Times and formed the New York Times Company. The Ochs-Sulzberger family, one of the United States newspaper dynasties, has owned the New York Times ever since. For 117 years, America's most influential news source has been in the hands of the same family. In 1926, the Jew David Sarna formed NBC, the first major broadcast network in the US. In 1928, the 27-year-old Jewish businessman William S. Paley secured majority ownership of the CBS radio network. Paley expanded CBS into a national powerhouse with 114 affiliate stations. It is very important to remember that the four most powerful media sources, the Washington Post, the New York Times, NBC, and CBS, were now all under total Jewish ownership and control. Jewish Daily Bulletin on July 27, 1935 said, There is only one power which really counts, the power of political pressure. We Jews are the most powerful people on earth because we have this power and we know how to apply it. The two largest German newspapers before 1933 were also in Jewish hands, Leopold Ulstein, August Scherl, and Rudolf Moss. These Jews had a virtual monopoly on the German press. Their main publication was the Berliner Tageblatt. The editor of this paper was Theodor Wolff, a Jew, who also took a prominent part in politics. All editorials, all policy, all thought and every single sphere of major influence had now fallen under Jewish control. Of the 29 legitimate theaters in Berlin, 23 had Jewish directors. In 1931, of 144 film scripts made into movies, 119 were written by Jews and 77 were produced by Jews.
When you ask what have the Germans done to the Jews, you must always ask what have you done the Jews to the Germans. In 1918, Lenin and Trotsky established the Communist International, also known as the Comintern, in Moscow, Russia. In the days following the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, Trotsky promoted the idea of a permanent revolution, which meant that the Soviet Union had to politically provoke other nations throughout the world to start their own Bolshevik revolutions. The Comintern stated openly that its intention was to fight for the creation of an international Soviet Republic, i.e. a communist world government. Comintern-affiliated parties formed in France, Italy, China, Germany, Spain, Belgium, the US and other nations. The ideology of communism spread like a poison through Europe. The author Ernst Elmhurst explained in 1938 that socialism, communism and Bolshevism in reality are only links in the plan of world-embracing Judaism with its final purpose of forcing the entire world under Jewish domination. Following the Russian Revolution of 1917, revolutionary Jewish communist leaders Karl Liebknecht and Rosa Luxemburg led a group of Jewish communists Kurt Eisner, Paul Levy, Franz Mehring, Wilhelm Pieck, Richard Müller, Emil Barth, Gustav Landauer, Eugene Levine and Emil Eichhorn to attempt a violent and bloody communist revolution in Germany as well. They were heroically stopped in 1919 by the veterans in the German Freikorps. The Jew Bela Kuhn instigated a Jewish revolution and took over the leadership of Hungary in March 1919. After months of red terror and massacres of Christians, the Hungarians managed to fight back. Hungarian Rear Admiral Miklas Horthy formed a national army to fight the Bolsheviks. With the support of the Romanian army, Horthy managed to take back the country on August 1, 1919. In Italy, Jewish-led communists committed mass murders in Sarana, Modena, Bologna, Pietro, Diana, and Milan, but were defeated by Mussolini's fascist forces. Fascism was a movement to save Europe from communism. Today, thanks to our globalist media, almost everyone thinks that fascism was something horrible. Fascism is, shortly, a defender of the nation its culture and people. Under fascism, government plays a key role in monitoring film, theater, art, literature, music, education, etc. In order to maintain a high moral standard, keep things clean and respectable, promote a strong sense of patriotism and honor, and prevent the spreading of decadence which corrupts society from within. Even Winston Churchill thought that fascism proved the necessary antidote to the communist poison. He said of Mussolini, Roman genius, the greatest lawgiver among men. Speaking in Rome on January 20, 1927, Winston Churchill said, If I had been an Italian, I am sure that I should have been wholeheartedly with you from the start to the finish. Italy has shown that there is a way of fighting the subversive forces which can rally the masses of the people properly led to value and wish to defend the honor and stability of civilized society. Hereafter, no great nation will be unprovided with an ultimate means of protection against the cancerous growth of Bolshevism. Twelve years later, Winston Churchill will align his country and people with Bolshevism. Oswald Mosley was the fascist leader of Britain and tried to save his country as well, but never managed to get enough power. Cornelio Cadrano said, Fascism means first of all, defending your nation against the dangers that threaten it. It means the destruction of these dangers and the opening of a free way to life and glory for your nation. Jewish Bolsheviks then attempted to take Spain in 1936, which led to the bloody Spanish Civil War. The Jews launched an orgy of mass murder, rape and destruction. The Jew Leiba Lazarevich Feldbin, Soviet Red Army officer, was chief of Soviet security in the Spanish Civil War. Over 20,000 churches across Spain were destroyed. 6,832 Spanish priests 
3,000 monks, 300 nuns, and 13 bishops were killed. Some 4,000 laymen were also murdered for helping or hiding nuns for priests. Felbin was one of the masterminds behind the massacres. In 1939, the devout Roman Catholic general Francisco Franco stepped up and created a united nationalist group and managed to save Spain from a communist takeover. Franco had the support of Antonio Salazar in Portugal, Benito Mussolini in Italy, and Adolf Hitler in Germany. On February 8, 1920, Sir Winston Churchill expressed his alarm over the world developments in an interview published in the Sunday Illustrated Herald, London. From the days of Adam Spartacus Weishaupt, to those of Karl Marx, to those of Trotsky, Bela Kuhn, Rosa Luxemburg, and Emma Goldman, this worldwide conspiracy for the overthrow of civilization and for the reconstruction of society on the basis of arrested development, of envious malevolence and impossible equality, has been steadily growing. Ideological and cultural subversion is a subtle, gradual, and persistent undermining internally of another group's values, strength, and ways of life, with the aim of making them vulnerable. This is the strategy that the communists used when they infiltrated and took over societies from within, starting with Germany. The four stages of subversion are demoralization, destabilization, crisis, and normalization. Uh, the Soviets use the phrase ideological subversion. What do they mean by it? Ideological subversion is, is the process which is legitimate, overt, and open. You, you can see it with your own eyes. All, all you have to do, all American mass media has to do, is to unplug their bananas from their ears, open up their eyes, and they can see it. Only about 15% of time, money, and manpower is spent on espionage as such. The other 85% is a slow process which we call either ideological subversion or active measures, activne meropriyatia in the language of, of the KGB, or psychological warfare. What it basically means is to change the perception of reality of every American to such an extent that despite of the abundance of information, no one is able to come to sensible conclusions in the interests of defending themselves, their families, their community, and their country. It's a great brainwashing uh, process which goes very slow and it's divided in, in four basic stages. Uh, the first one being demoralization. It takes from 15 to 20 years to demoralize a nation. Why that many years? Because this is the minimum number of years which requires to uh, educate one generation of students in the country of, of, of your enemy, exposed to the ideology of the enemy. In other words, Marxism-Leninism ideology is being pumped into the soft heads of, of, of at least three generations of American students without being challenged or counterbalanced by the basic values of Americanism, American patriotism. The demoralization process in the United States is basically completed already. Uh, for the last 25 years, Actually, it's overfulfilled because uh, demoralization now reaches such areas where previously not even Comrade Andropov and, and all his experts would, would even dream of such a tremendous success. Most of it is done by Americans to Americans, thanks to lack of moral standards. As I mentioned before, uh, exposure to true information does not matter anymore. A person who was demoralized is unable to assess true information. The facts tell nothing to him. Uh, even if I shower him with information, with, with authentic proof, with documents, with pictures, even if I take him by force to the Soviet Union and show him concentration camp, he will refuse to believe it until he, he is going to receive a kick in, the, in his fat bottom. When a military boot crashes his then he will understand, but not before that. That's the tragic of the situation of demoralization. So the next stage is destabilization. This time, subverter does not care about your ideas and the patterns of your consumption, whether you eat junk food and get fat and flabby, it doesn't matter anymore. This time, and it takes only from two to five years to destabilize a nation, 
it's what what matters is essentials: economy, foreign relations, defense systems. Uh, and you can see it quite clearly that in some areas, uh, in such sensitive areas as, as uh, defense and economy, uh, the uh, influence of Marxist-Leninist ideas in the United States is absolutely fantastic. I, I could never believe it 14 years ago when I landed uh, in this part of the world that the process will go that fast. Uh, the next stage, of course, is crisis. It, it, it may take only up to six weeks to, to bring a country to the verge of crisis. You can see it in, in Central America now. And after crisis, with a violent change of, of power, structure and economy, you have so-called the period of normalization. It may last indefinitely. This is what will happen in the United States if you allow all these schmucks to bring the country to crisis to promise people all kinds of goodies and the paradise on earth, uh, to, to destabilize your uh, economy, to eliminate the principle of free market competition, and to put a big brother government in Washington, D.C., who will promise lots of things, never mind whether the promises are fulfillable or not. Your leftists in, in the United States, all these professors and all these beautiful civil rights defenders, they are instrumental in the process of the, of the uh, uh, subversion only to destabilize the nation. When their job is completed, they are, non, they are not needed anymore. They know too much. Some of them, when, when they get disillusioned, when they see that Marxist-Lenin has come to power, they, obviously they get offended. They think that they will come to power. That will never happen, of course. They will be lined up against the wall and shot. Towards the end of 1922, the Communist International, Comintern, began to consider how they would succeed taking over Europe in the most effective way. On Lenin's initiative, a meeting was organized at the Marx-Engels Institute in Moscow. The aim of the meeting was to start the Marx Cultural Revolution. Among those present at the meeting was George Lukács, a Jewish-Hungarian aristocrat and a son of a banker. In the summer of 1924, Lukács moved to Germany. Here he held the first meeting of a group of communist-oriented intellectuals. This gathering was to lead the foundation of the Frankfurt School. The institute had been officially established and funded by the Jewish millionaire Felix Weil. This institute was called the Institute for Social Research. Later it would be known as the Frankfurt School. These new Marxists, under the direction of Max Horkheimer, believed that Europeans were too attached to tradition, race, nation, family, and faith to be able to accept communism. Antonio Gramsci, while in prison, described that Marxism and communism could only flourish after a long march through the cultural institutions. Only then, after they had corrupted all Western values and made life impossible for us, could they impose the dictatorship of the proletariat. This was also what the Fabian Socialists did to weaken the countries and slowly implementing international communism. The mantra would now be, change and destroy Western culture before communism would be accepted. George Lukács believed that for a new communist culture to emerge, the existing European culture had to be destroyed. There is no other way to get control of a society with strong moral values than to weaken those values. He said, I saw the revolutionary destruction of society as the one and only solution to the cultural contradictions of the epoch. Such a worldwide overturning of values cannot take place without the annihilation of the old values and the creation of new ones by the revolutionaries. Willy Munzenberg said, We must organize the intellectuals and use them to make Western civilization stink. Only then, after they had corrupted all its values and made life impossible, can we impose the dictatorship of the proletariat. In his 1915 book, The Spirit of Militarism, Nahum Goldman, top-level international Zionist and the president of the World Jewish Congress, describes the Zionist method for destruction of Western civilization, which is required for transition into a new world order. 
The historical mission of our world revolution is to rearrange a new culture of humanity to replace the previous social systems. This conversion and reorganization of global society requires two essential steps. Firstly, the destruction of the old established order. Secondly, the sign and imposition of the new order. The first stage requires elimination of all frontier borders, nationhood and culture, public policy ethical barriers and social definitions. Only then can the destroyed old system elements be replaced by the imposed system elements of our new order. The first task of our world revolution is destruction. All social strata and social formations created by the traditional society must be annihilated. Individual men and women must be uprooted from their ancestral environment, torn out of their native environments. No tradition of any type shall be permitted to remain as sacred. Traditional social norms must only be viewed as a disease to be eradicated. The ruling dictum of the new order is, nothing is good so everything must be criticized and abolished. Everything that was must be gone. After destruction of the old order, construction of the new order is a larger and more difficult task. We will have torn out the old limbs from their ancient roots in deep layers. Social norms will be lying disorganized and anarchic. So they must be blocked against new cultural forms and social categories naturally re-emerging. The general masses will have been first persuaded to join as equals in the first task of destroying their own traditional society and economic culture. But then, the new order must be forcibly established through people again, being divided and differentiated only in accordance with the new pyramidical hierarchical system of our imposed global monolithic new world order. Max Horkheimer, Jewish intellectual of the Frankfurt School, explained, The revolution won't happen with guns. Rather, it will happen incrementally, year by year, generation by generation. We will gradually infiltrate their educational institutions and their political offices, transforming them slowly into Marxist entities as we move towards universal egalitarianism. Out of this came cultural Marxism, the subversive ideology which meant that gender, sexual orientation, family, race, culture, or religion, every single aspect of a white person's identity was to be questioned, every norm or standard in a society challenged and ideally altered and demolished in order to benefit supposedly oppressed groups instead of Europeans. This was supposed to create a society in which the Jews would not be seen as an outside distinctive class, where they could feel safer to climb to the highest positions in society without encountering much opposition from Europeans. The entire purpose of cultural Marxism was to delegitimize and banish European ethnic interests and replace them with minorities. When I started uh, writing about Jewish intellectual movements, I realized I couldn't just go around counting Jews. And what I had to show was that you had a cohesive core of Jews that were, that were mutually reinforcing each other, that they were the backbone of this movement. And I had to show that these people identified as Jews. And I had to show that they viewed what they were doing as furthering specific Jewish goals. For example, one of the most common things was they were concerned about anti-Semitism. Quite a bit of my writing in, in my book, The Culture of Critique, was to show that the Jews who were the center of these Jewish intellectual movements were very concerned about issues like anti-Semitism. That they were trying to uh, develop theories in which anti-Semitism was a pathology, in which anti-Semitism had no intellectual basis, in which it was just morally uh, beyond the pale. The important thing was to show that Jewish identification was important and furthering of, uh, of, of a, a specific Jewish goal. Now that's not to say that this was a, a goal that all Jews have. We're not saying that all Jews ha are anything, as a matter of fact. For example, psychoanalysis has specific 
goals, uh, they were concerned about uh, about anti-Semitism. But that doesn't mean that most Jews uh, even believe in psychoanalysis or anything else. We're talking about a cohesive group of people. It's very easy to show that the Frankfurt School intellectuals, Max Hor Horkheimer, uh, Adorno, and these other uh, uh, prominent Frankfurt School people had strong Jewish identities. Franz Boas, the famous anthropologist, very strong Jewish identity, a very deep concern with specific Jewish issues like anti-Semitism, and that they saw their particular intellectual uh, endeavors as advancing specific Jewish goals. There's nothing wrong with advancing your own goals. That's what we all do. The only thing is that those goals oftentimes conflict with those of other people. And so uh, essentially, for example, at the Frankfurt School, he developed an ideology in which any group identification that a non-Jew had was considered a pathology. So that if, uh, if uh, someone like me identified as a white person and had you know, felt I had interest as a white person, well, that was viewed as a psychiatric disorder. There was never any mention uh, about Jews that strong, with a very strong sense of, of Jewish identity and Jewish interest that there was anything wrong with them. It was, it was an ideology that, uh, framed be that, uh, that really framed adaptive behaviors of non-Jews as pathological. Even, even family, uh, family life, uh, that, that non-Jews with uh, strong family ties and so on, there's something wrong with them. Their families were authoritarian and they did all the psychoanalytic stuff to, to try to prove that, that sort of thing. But it was just, you know, made up science and no scientific basis at all.